This episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. Use promo code WEEDS for 10% off your first purchase of a website and a domain. Wait, let me do a loud soda can popping before we record. Boom. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined today by, by Dylan Matthews. I'm uh, going to do a sort of a deep dive with him on uh, a basic income. He recently wrote just a, I think, magisterial. Is, is there, How long is it? It's too long. It's like 7,000 words. Yeah, it's it's magisterial. It's like, this is like the agents start coming out of the woodwork and being like, pad this out a little, you'll have a book, man. Um, <laughs> uh, magisterial piece about basic income. Uh, we're we're going to talk about that. It, it happens to be the case, though, that Dylan and I both have a, a keen interest in the pardon power, which recently we've had some uh, some leaks that, that President Trump is looking into. Right. So the the leak today from the the post was that he's examining the scope of his pardon power. That the way it's phrased is not that he's imminently going to issue pardons, but he's sort of testing out how far it goes. And the phrasing was it's like, "Yo, I heard I can pardon people. What's up with that?" Yo, I heard you like pardons. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so he's looking into whether he can pardon aides, whether he can pardon family members who are in many cases the same as aides. Uh, and whether he can pardon himself. Right. So, um, and Jay Sekulow, who's one of his personal attorneys, went on on CBS and said, we're not looking into to pardons. Pardons aren't on the table. It seems like pardons are getting closer to the table. <laughs> They're in the na- Look, <laughs> frankly, if you're a new president and you don't know anything about politics, asking some people in the Office of Legal Counsel what the president's powers are and aren't, it seems like a reasonably prudent line of... Uh, Inquiry. So, you know, to answer the president, you know, a few months, I know Trump is a, a loyal listener. Um, he's He likes likes the weeds. He, he likes the sort of deep policy material. The important limit on the president's pardon power, as I understand it, is that it only extends to federal crimes. Right. Like, I think this is the most common misconception about the federal pardon power. Like, when the show Making a Murderer came out on, on Netflix, there was a lot of calls for Obama to, uh, to pardon the subject of of the documentary, but that was a local Wisconsin case, and so the president didn't have any powers. But within federal crimes, the power is basically unlimited. That There was uh, Lawrence Tribe, who's a Harvard Law professor who wrote about this, I think, in the 80s, had some paper about, about what the checks on the pardon power are, and his three checks are impeachment, <laughs> you can lose re-election, and the judgment of history. <laughs> right. So, I mean, to give an example of some, you know, historical uses of the pardon power, right? George H.W. Bush pardoned a bunch of Iran-Contra figures from the Reagan administration, right. including people who I think it was widely believed among liberals at the time that these were like aides who clammed up refused to turn on their superiors, did a little bit of time because they wouldn't flip, and then they all got out. Right, and some hadn't even done time, like, and and were more senior. Casper Weinberger, who was uh, Secretary of Defense for most of Reagan's administration, uh, had been indicted but not hadn't gone on trial yet, and he was pardoned, which sort of obviated the the whole proceedings. And and he was not like he was not a patsy. He was right. like a really powerful member of the Reagan right. administration. So so 
pardon high-level aides for involvement in serious political scandals. That it, like it sounds bad, but that's the thing that people do. Uh, yeah. um, then you had Bill Clinton just like pardon some donors. Right. He pardoned some donors. The most infamous one was Mark Rich, who had renounced his American citizenship so that he would not face charges relating to illegal trading with Iran when it was under sanctions, which th- that seems pretty bad. And also, but I mean, but like other, I mean, there was like right. stuff related to Hillary Clinton's campaign, right? Some, uh, like some Puerto Rican terrorists. Right. Uh, A weather underground member had her sentence commuted. She'd been found with like 650 pounds of TNT right. and described it as combat material. Um, and and so like she got out Patty Hearst, the uh, heiress who was kidnapped and then sort of got on board with right. a with a, a left-wing terrorist group, had her, her uh, offense pardoned. Probably the most infamous pardon in American history was Gerald Ford on Richard Nixon, that after Nixon had resigned and disgraced over Watergate, Ford judged that he thought it would be bad for the country. For Nixon to go on trial. For Nixon to go on trial. Since- and so strikingly here, right, Nixon was not pardoned for anything in particular. He was just given a kind of blanket immunity for whatever related to Watergate you might have thought you might try to charge him with. Exactly. So uh, one thing that was very important about that pardon is that it established, which which had been established before, but it, it underlined that you can pardon people for offenses with which they have not yet been charged um, and over a given period of time. There's a, there's a Supreme Court case that speaks to this called uh, Ex Parte Garland uh, in 1866, where someone was challenging his disbarment. And the Supreme Court ruled that that the pardon power extends to, can be used at any point after the commission of the crime. Right. So so this gets us to the the limits that exist are, it has to be for a federal crime. So you can't pardon, you know, the bulk of people who are just in jail for, for crimes. And you can't pardon someone in advance. Right. Right. You can't, like, pardon someone bef- and then they do the crime. <laughs> right. I mean, we should say the vast bulk of pardons that get handed out are these kind of uh, gestures of mercy, right? right. I mean, it's it's uh, particularly, like, Democratic presidents, when they're lame ducks, tend to just, like, let a lot of drug dealers uh, out of jail because they don't believe that criminal law should be so punitive to, to nonviolent drug offenders. Yeah. Um, you know, there's select cases. Uh, Obama pardoned um, some general who I guess people felt had gotten kind of railroaded on a leak case, and he pardoned Chelsea Manning. Who, he commuted Chelsea Manning's sentence. Yes. Yes, which is distinct. So, so Chelsea Manning still has been convicted in a military court of a crime. Right. So I think the thing, so it's like she was guilty of the thing that she was charged. I mean, she yeah. hasn't been pardoned of it. She clearly did the crime of which she was accused, right. but she was let out of a very harsh prison sentence. Right. She was spared decades in prison. And that's that's like most of pardoning is things like that. I mean, debatable questions of political judgment, but uh, it's like on the up and up. But we do have, I mean, there there are examples of, a lot of examples of what I think would strike you intuitively as abusive uses of this power, and there's no checkup. And there's, there's many more at the state level that the governors sort of have the equivalent power for state offenses. And because most crimes are at the state level, that in some ways gives them more power. Like they're less grand crimes and they're less likely. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, but like Ray Blanton, who was the governor of Tennessee in the 70s, 
after he lost his election to uh, Lamar Alexander, he went on a like wild spree of just pardoning murderers and stuff. And they actually secretly inaugurated Lamar Alexander early to stop the pardon spree. <laughs> Why did he pardon all these guys? It's not super clear to me. It, it seems like a mixture of corruption and just like for the hell of it. <laughs> um the, the more recent case was Ernie Fletcher, who is the Republican governor of, of Kentucky from 03 to 07. And he had a, a sort of big uh, scandal in his administration. I f- forget the exact contours, but he issued blanket pardons for a lot of his aides. He, he didn't pardon himself. Um, it, there was a possibility that he would have. And the grand jury that was investigating the scandal kept issuing indictments for people he had pardoned. And it took a judge saying, not like, no, the preemptive pardons count. These people can't be charged. So where where does this come from? Like, why do we, does the president have this power? I mean, it's a the presidency is like a relatively weak office in many ways, but then has just this kind of unchecked ability to let anyone off the hook for anything. I mean, I think we underestimate how much the American presidency was modeled after sort of the king of. England uh-huh. since like that was the executive example that that you had to model after like the uh the French Revolution hadn't happened there weren't like a lot of examples of durable republics in Europe and a lot of them were more legislative like the the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth did not have a really strong like central executive I don't right. believe and so traditionally in monarchies the especially absolute monarchies the Monarch has absolute discretion to pardon crimes because because offenses are offenses against the crown. In American cases, sort of criminal cases are often styled as the people versus whatever. Right. And the, the people are not the prosecutor in, in, in sort of pure monarchies. The crown is the prosecutor. And the offenses you're committing are, are indignities to, to the king or queen. Um, and... And so we've sort of ported over that power, which made a certain amount of sense within the internal logic of monarchy mm-hmm. um, and just gave it to a totally different figure. Yeah. And and so you, you have this situation. I mean, a, a, a sort of lacuna in, in the system is that, you know, you can only pardon people for federal crimes. But here in D.C., where we live, all crimes are federal crimes, including right. things that normally are state crimes, right? So, like, murder is illegal in all American states. It's also illegal in, in D.C., but in D.C., all that stuff, robbery, burglary, murder, is all federal crimes. So, in theory, I mean, this always, I don't think Donald Trump <laughs> is going to do this, but but it always strikes, when people would say, like, well, he's within his rights to fire James Comey, he is, he's very literally within his rights to have a squad of goons murder his political opponents on the streets of Washington and then pardon them. I mean, one would like to think that impeachment proceedings would follow <laughs> from something like that, but it's really like black letter law. It's like it's way clearer that Donald Trump could do that than that like Obama could regulate carbon dioxide emissions from power plants, which, like, people have a lot of disagreements. Right. It's about. not a hard Supreme Court case. Like, they would be, for one thing, they'd be terrified about the goon squad. But also, <laughs> but also, like, it's, it's yeah, it's not ambiguous in the text of the Constitution that he could do that, which raises all kinds of terrifying, it, it reminds you of how much, like, we're bound together by norms rather than, than concrete rules, that if Trump really wanted to pass this health care bill, 
sure <laughs> he could get goons to like kill the senators and members of congress who he thought were were trouble for him and then it would happen pretty easily and it would be totally legal and it would be totally i, I don't want to say on the up and up but, <laughs> but like it he would not face legal repercussions for that. But I mean, I, all of which is just to say, you can't, you, ultimately, the political system is a political system. You know, it's right. not like a self-regulating set of formal rules. And Republican members of Congress either will or won't exercise the powers of their office to put a check on the presidency. They either will or won't be defeated on election day if they fail to do that. But as we talk about different things Trump could try to do to get out from under this Russia investigation, whether it's it's firing Bob Mueller, whether it's issuing pardons to, to one or another, there's no... I mean, he can ask his attorneys, like, what can I do? What can I not do? But it's really a question for Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell in some ways. It's like, what will you support me in right. doing, and what will you balk at? I mean, I mean, the legal system checks the president in some ways and to some extents, but it is ultimately, Nixon was brought down because at a certain point, congressional Republican leaders were like, we're, we're done with this. Right. It wasn't, and in fact, the legal system ultimately by Gerald Ford was subverted. The legal system was subverted. Yeah, and, and, I mean, I think it's you can interpret it as as a moment of of courage by those Republican leaders, and there was there was a literal meeting. Like uh, the House Minority Leader and Senate Minority Minority Leader went to the White House and said, "You have no more support. You will be impeached um, if you don't resign voluntarily." And you can credit that to them. You can credit that to there being the willpower to impeach in Congress, such that they could say that credibly. But yeah, I'm, I've I've written this take and, and re-upped it a few times during various stages in the scandal, saying that the only people who can end Trump's presidency early are, are Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. And this is sort of what I mean, is that the, the conventional belief is that the, the president cannot be tried while in office through anything but impeachment. Maybe he could be indicted by a state court, and that would be an interesting and innovative thing, but it's not sort of relevant to what's going on now. In his own Justice Department, even if they tried to do that, he could just fire them. And so the only real check we have on presidential power, the only formal check, rather than sort of sort of the kind of rules and norms that we took for granted until this, or, or with the exception of, of Nixon— is is Congress and is right. their their willingness to to move toward impeachment? And I've just seen no inkling that that Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell are interested in that right. at all. You know, the most important part of building a, a great business of any kind is building a great team and finding great talent. Uh, but everybody knows that it's important to find great talent, which makes it really difficult. Uh, so with ZipRecruiter, you can do this much more efficiently. You post your job to over 100 job sites with just one click, uh, which is great. But what's really important is that their powerful technology matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. And this is what makes them different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't require candidates to find you. It finds them. Over 
80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. And, and there's no like juggling emails and calls to your office. You can screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with their easy-to-use dashboard. So you find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the best job candidates with immediate results. Right now, our listeners can post jobs in ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, it's free. So just go to ZipRecruiter.com weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com weeds. One more time, try it for free, ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. So that said, basic income. Basic income. Should Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell get money every year? It's great. No, so so th- this is a great, a great piece that you did because I think it it slices out like the different basic incomes right. that exist, like the different kinds of of ideas that are out there. And so there's like a there's like the libertarian basic income. What's it? The the automated gay space communism? Basic income. Yeah. The the sort of the robots have taken our jobs. We need a basic income, basic income. There's the sort of what I'm sympathetic to is basic income as a, a means of poverty reduction. In some ways, it reminds me a bit about, and I, I, I don't want to morally equate these, but when when we invaded Iraq, there were like okay. people who who had a bunch of different reasons for wanting to do that. Like there were the Paul Wolfowitz types who like sincerely believed in like the U.S. as a democratizing force, mm-hmm. and that we needed to sort of remake this society as a, a Western liberal democracy. There were the people who sincerely believed the WND stuff. There were people who were super interested in in eliminating support for terrorism, and those all like lead you to different wars right and like lead you to different policies and and one thing that became very clear in the early stages of that war was that that these were in tension with each other right. <laughs> and and i think there's something a little similar happening here in that uh the basic income one of the things that's remi- remarkable about it and one of the reasons it's become such a famous idea is that unlike like doubling food stamps. It's something that has sort of broad cross-ideological buy-in. Right. On a on a superficial level. On a superficial level, yeah. That you can you can say accurately that there are a bunch of Marxists who support basic income and also that Milton Friedman supported it. Right. So so okay, so so let's say there's 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 a libertarian basic income, there's automation basic income, and there's anti-poverty. There's there's Reduce poverty, basic income. Right. So, so how does the, the the libertarian basic income? You you talk about this in terms of, of what Charles Murray says in in his series of books, and and so like what what's that about? What's that proposal? Sure. So, the the proposal that that Charles Murray lays out in his book, uh, which is called In Our Hands, it's it's a basic income proposal, but it's mostly a proposal to get rid of the welfare state. That he um, he puts together a list of of what he dubs to be welfare programs in uh, the American budget, which includes both means tested programs like food stamps or, or Section Eight, and bigger social insurance programs like Medicare and Social Security. And the plan is to just wipe those out mm-hmm. and replace them with uh, I think it's thirteen thousand in, in his most recent edition, uh, thirteen thousand a year per adult uh, basic income. And so this is like. No assistance buying medical care. Right. No assistance with college tuition. There's like a nominal requirement that $3,000 go into a health savings account that you can then use to buy health insurance. But as, as loyal Weeds listeners will know, $3,000 a year does not pay for very good health insurance in the individual market. Right. But so like this is like a situation where a healthy person without a lot of 
stuff going on in life could sort of eke out a poverty subsistence without working or doing anything, needing to jump through any bureaucratic hoops, blah, blah, blah. But you would also be getting nothing to, like, help you with your cancer diagnosis or help you send your children to college. Right. And you would have nothing in, like, I think social insurance is kind of a term of art, and it's easy to forget that it's actually insurance, mm-hmm. that that you're you're insuring against some eventuality. And and so because of that, the benefits you get are better than some basic amount. So the average Social Security benefit for seniors and disabled people is significantly higher than $13,000 a year. Right. Um, the average benefit from unemployment insurance is significantly higher than that. And this leads to some sort of interesting distributional dynamics. I didn't get into this in this piece, but um, AEI did a sort of score using their own tax model and benefits model of what a UBI paid for by getting rid of like all of those programs. And then they also included stuff like the mortgage interest deduction and the employer health exclusion. So a bunch of like sort of tax breaks that are kind of like welfare for upper middle class and, and wealthy people. And the, the breakdown was that if you were between 18 and 64 and you are not super wealthy, like everyone wins huh. because you're not on Medicare, you're not on Social Security. Sure. And so it's just redistributing money that's going to old people to you. If you're very wealthy, you're worse off because you lose all these tax breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, but but for most people, you're, you're, you're doing great. Every senior loses that. Right. I, I always find these like age-based distribution models to be a little bit I don't want to say they're confusing. I, I think they're confused. I mean, the, <laughs> the the idea of taxing working people to subsidize senior citizens is not that a static transfer from middle-aged people to old people makes sense. It's that the middle-aged people will themselves be old. And I know, I mean, this is like, there's like a famous like Margaret Thatcher line about how like there's no such thing as society. Right. And I think that like really plays in here, right? Like the the conception <laughs> of American old age assistance programs is like inherently tied to the idea that like the nation endures over time. Right. And that there is a certain mystical bond such that it would be mean to take my social security benefits away just because you could when I become old, that, like, we're we're paying it forward cosmically. And, I mean, I know, I mean, conservatives will rightly point out that, like, th- there's nothing actually in the program design that makes that true. You don't right. really pay in and then take out. But I just still think, like, the idea is not to, like, look at it and be like, oh, yeah, we got to stick it to this 59-year-old right. to give money to the 66-year-old. It's that, like, you age over time and then you get your old age benefits. Well, and famously, Neil Kinnock, in, in challenging one of Margaret Thatcher's budgets, had a speech where he said, if this passes, you should pray that you do not become old. You should pray that you do not become sick. Right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. that, that it's people are not at one point in time. There are life cycles. And, and you, the reason we have these programs is that most people get to a point where they need them. Right. And you're supposed to think of them as, as institutions. But so why does Murray want to do this? I mean, it's, a, it's definitely like a fun thought experiment. Right. Because I think People walk around, we're like not actually aware like how much money is spent on this this different stuff. And it's it's a good exercise to like count it up and say, like, well, what if we cash this all out? But like why why does he think we should do this? So I think there are a couple of reasons. I think the reason that he shares with a bunch of other libertarian enthusiasts for this kind of idea, um, Michael Tanner at at Cato comes to mind, is that if you grew this at the rate of inflation, mm-hmm. it wouldn't grow as a size of the economy. That 
the U.S., like most rich countries, it has sort of a growing share of the government because of population aging and because healthcare grows as, mm-hmm. as a cost much faster than the rest of the economy. And so by cashing out all these healthcare programs and these programs for seniors, you're sort of erasing aging and healthcare inflation as reasons for, for the government getting more expensive and growing. And so for a libertarian, I think that's attractive. That mm-hmm. it, it prevents these sort of natural forces from growing the government. But Murray, Murray's a weird guy. He he has this very distinctive view of how human society should operate and this sort of belief that that a very negative thing that has happened is that the government has usurped roles in communities that might have in another era been filled by churches or mutual aid or or just sort of your neighborhood. And there's there's a really interesting segment when he was uh, when he was debating basic income at Intelligence Squared, where he's describing what a world with basic income would look like. And he would say that that now, if someone is like a screw up in your town who who doesn't work, um, who sort of plays video games or does drugs all day, they can they can always plead that they d- they don't have the resources they need, that they don't have have the jobs or the health care, and and they they would love to work and and be productive, but uh, but they just can't make it. And that the basic income removes that excuse and sort of gives you permission to berate this person and say, like, get your act together. You have money. We all have money. Like, do your thing. Huh. It's it's not like what I view <laughs> the good society to look like. And it strikes me as sort of naive about what people in those situations need. But if you look at people who are working age and not working, like many of them are disabled. And you can't just like group shame someone with uh-huh. a serious back problem. <laughs> into- I mean, it's interesting though, because I think this is actually a concern that many people right. raise about basic income ideas is is like the opposite, right? So like one thing people will say is that like, look, at the end of the day, it would be better if like if you have to work for a living, then you're going to go work for a living and you're going to like learn the norms of bourgeois respectability and hard work and you're going to end up with an income that's like a lot higher right. than you could get from your welfare check. But that if you let people just like rely on the monthly check, they're going to sort of level their ambitions down to just kind of like cash the check, play video games. But but Murray is saying, like, the opposite, that it's like, if everybody just got a check, then we'd all feel free to, like, yell at our neighbors and be like, you better go work, right? That there would be this, like, intense community shaming mechanism. Right. And, I mean, I mean, I Murray lives in a small town in Iowa, and maybe that's how it works there. I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire, and, and that is not my sense of how sort of communities mobilize. Well, and there's also this sort of, um, nostalgia for a pre-Bowling Alone era where there were these sort of dense social networks. And I think I think there's there's a, a kind of naive nostalgia among some small government types that look at America before the New Deal and say, well, we didn't have all these health programs. We didn't mm-hmm. have all this social insurance. And like we got by somehow. And and right. and that the, the operating theory of how we got by was was through community aid and and churches and and a, a vibrant private charity network and and support system and 
I think that's mistaken. I think part of it was that there was just a lot more poverty and death and suffering right. before that and, and that it was sort of obscured. Um, and it's easy to look back in, in rose-colored glasses and, and feel good about that. But I, I think it's it's partly meant to be responsive, as you say, to the the concern about basic income, like keeping people from working. Right. That uh, especially sort of fellow libertarians and conservatives will share with with Murray, in part because of Murray's own work. Right. Uh, that Mur- Murray's first book. Uh, Wait, I mean, this is Charles Murray's characterization of the old AFDC program right. was that even though the program was quite stingy, it was like just generous enough in his account, that it would cause, like, whole communities to just give up on working. Right. And he had, uh, and, and his his grievances were, were partly about working. It was partly that he thought it created all these weird marriage penalties and, like, broke up nuclear families and encouraged single parenthood and, and all these pathologies. And, and you can tell that his, his basic income proposal is designed in such a way that it doesn't have marriage penalties. And he's very worried about that. It doesn't give any benefits to families with children in excess of right. what the adults are getting because he's very worried. Right, so it's a flat amount per adult it's a flat to basically amount, discourage yeah. you from having kids. Right, right. So that that people won't be like breeding to get their checks, um, which is, is I think, a disturbing way to think about lower income people's like families, but um, is, is in keeping with that book. It was funny in writing this piece, I went back and reread a lot of Losing Ground and there's the sections where he talks about why he thinks AFDC is problematic, he relies a little on research about AFDC itself, but he mostly relies on all these studies done about negative income taxes, which uh-huh. is sort of a form of basic income that that phases out with as you, you right. gain income, that's sort of topping up your income rather than everyone just getting a flat check. And the U.S. and Canada did a bunch of city-based trial demonstrations of this idea in the 70s and, and early 80s. And his read on them is that they destroyed families and caused unacceptable right. uh, work discouragement. And it is not clear to me at all why this is not true of his proposal. Right, 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 <laughs> right. Like, if you read the evidence the way he does in Losing Ground, then his proposal in in our hands is, like, lunacy. Right. Okay, so, turning the page, I think— <laughs> Charles Murray's wrong. I, I, think, I think the basic income that gets the most attention in the media— is like Andy Stern and Mark Zuckerberg. Andy Stern's a, a sort of very prominent uh, former labor union leader. Uh, we, we've had him on the weeds. Mark Zuckerberg uh, has some kind of website. Um, right. Some other people. Thefacebook.com. Yeah. Um, this is a like a hot idea in the tech community is like we're doing great here in our technology companies, but there's a lot of problems in America that are caused or will be caused in the near future because AI is going to put people out of work. So we need to rethink everything and establish a basic income. My my read, I I, I wrote this uh, for for a uh, slate completist. Uh, you can mm-hmm. read uh, the recent book Treconomics. <laughs> I, I think this is what we're supposed to believe is happening in the Star Trek television series, although they don't have AI as we right. would as we would consider it. I'm always puzzled about the amount of play this has, like, now in America. I mean, I so I think Silicon Valley is a very culturally important force for the rest of America. And people look to people like Zuckerberg and Elon Musk as celebrities who are sort of leading indicators of certain things. And 
I think there's a sense in Silicon Valley in part because people have to believe this to be be engaged in the work they're engaged in, that we're on the cusp of these really incredible uh, automizations and that, that will cause mass societal disruption. So self-driving cars and self-driving trucks are the, the big uh, near-term example. And it's serious that I mean, there are, what, like three to four million truck drivers? Yeah, people America. drive trucks. A lot of people drive trucks. More people drive taxis. And those people could be out of work or transitioned out of work uh, as these things hit to market and as, as trucking companies move to, to self-driving vehicles. Andy Stern's book is mostly sort of a, a story of him going to labs at MIT and and companies in, in California and seeing uh, robots that he thinks are going to take jobs he could have unionized back in the day. Right. Um, the one, there's a really striking company he talked about called Contour Crafting that is sort of a 3D printing company that does housing. And mm-hmm. so they have a material that can include wiring and, and stuff in, in concrete type walls and just sort of print them down right. piece by piece. And I think the first thing to say is that these, it, these if and when they happen, will be very important inventions and will probably cause a lot of disruption. Like there's no, I would not dispute that. And I think there was a recent study by Darren Asimoglu um, and a, a co-author about the effect of industrial robots from uh, sort of 1990 or 2000 to the present and found that there was a significant sort of near-term disemployment. Right. But here's where I think it's important to distinguish between technology-induced disruption and technology-induced mass unemployment. And I I happen to be sensitive, but I think if most people think about their families, it will find like a, a similar story. But like my mother was an analog graphic designer. She worked for magazines that at the pinnacle of her career, she worked at Newsweek. She had a box full of X-Acto razors. She had the little strips of lead that would separate uh, typeface. She had all kinds of like rubber paint and like weird magnifying glasses. And like she she cut and pasted things and like put magazine pages together. And then desktop publishing software wiped out those jobs. And actually, I think it's, it's critical to understand, it's not like it wiped out the job of designing a magazine. Right. But, or I don't even know if the number of people employed in that field went down or not, but certainly the specific people who were doing the job were suddenly not doing that job. Right. And things like that happen. Nobody really cared that analog page desktop designers were disemployed by desktop publishing software. Uh, There are a lot more truck drivers, so it's a bigger issue. But what definitely did not happen in the mid to late 1980s is that, like, work ended. Right. Right? That, like, and and, and I really want to, like, draw the line here because you should not think that the people who were disemployed by desktop publishing software wound up being okay. I mean, right, I think right. my, my mother was, like, okay in a cosmic sense, <laughs> but, like, she never reobtained the pinnacle of her career because she had decades of skills built up and invested in a particular way of doing things, and, like, it was wrecked. It was not okay. But from a macro-social viewpoint— it was okay. Right. There and, wasn't and, a persistent increase in unemployment in the late 80s that has never gone away. Right. And if you look at 2016, 2017, we have these studies about displacement manufacturing workers. The life trajectories of people who had those factory jobs have often gone, like, not that well. They've gotten new jobs, but they don't pay as well. Communities are disrupted. But it's important to understand, there is no point 
in history at which more Americans have had jobs <laughs> than like right now. This is the right. jobbiest time that we have ever had. And it's not because nobody ever lost a factory job. It's just like that's not how the, like the macro economy is not a like assemblage of like you have a job and you have a job and you have a job. Right. Like if people are around so far throughout history, somebody will pay them to do something. Make your next move with a beautiful website from Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one solution to your website needs. They're used by all kinds of creatives, musicians, designers, artists, restaurants, more, uh, journalists, frankly. Uh, you know, if you are doing something in 2017, you should probably have a website. You may not know how to make a website from scratch by yourself. Uh, I used to do it. It, it was hard. Uh, with Squarespace, it is easy. Uh, you log on. Um, they take care of all the hosting. They have amazing award-winning 24-7 customer support. There's nothing to install. There's nothing you need to patch. There's nothing you need to upgrade ever. They take care of all that kind of security stuff. Uh, they're designed. They have these like great templates that happen out there by default. You pick one that you want to start with. Uh, then you can tweak it however you want with really like simple, intuitive, user-friendly stuff. They got options for, for e-commerce, for basically any kind of website anyone could conceivably want. You can make it really easily at Squarespace. You use offer code WEEDS at checkout for 10 percent off your first purchase of a website and a domain. Sometimes I get into arguments with people about this and they'll say, well, what will the, those people do? What will the new jobs to sprout up and complement be? And, and I don't know, but I also don't think the people when washing machines and dryers came out in the 30s and 40s had like a super clear idea of where the, the jobs at laundromats were going to be replaced by such that we would still have full employment after that. And I don't think when like large 18-wheeler trucks came out, which I think are arguably an even greater labor-saving innovation relative to, to some railroads or, or smaller trucks than, than self-driving trucks will be. I don't think people had, had a super clear sense of, of where the offsets would be, but it's always happened. And, and there's always been sort of adaptation in the economy to, to keep the level of jobs as a share of the population, not like constant exactly, but preventing the sort of large-scale mass unemployment that that this whole discussion is premised on. And I think it's also important to be clear that the basic income only really makes sense in, in this right. usage. Basic income for this purpose only makes sense if you're talking about a world where, like, two-thirds of the population or something just can't get jobs and they need some way to get by. And so you you need some way to distribute from the, the tiny minority that still has jobs to, to the great sort of jobless masses. Right, well, because this is a critical point. Let's say within 10 years, three or four million truck and taxi driving jobs go away. Right. That's not like a post-work utopia. Right. Right, but it is a lot of jobs. And I think well, one point your piece makes is that the basic income doesn't actually solve... If you're worried about the displacement problem, but not about the, like, end of work, you haven't actually fixed, like the truck drivers have a real problem yeah. coming down the pike and the basic income doesn't help that problem. Right. It's an honest to God problem. And yeah, the, like, I mean, like what's like, what's the math on that? Right. So, so like, let's suppose you're, you're a truck driver, you're making 70, $80,000 a year. You've been doing it for a little while, uh, single earner household, uh, you're working, your spouse isn't, you get laid off. Auto, the big self-driving comp 
truck company has sold a bunch of self-driving trucks to your trucking concern. So you're out of a job. Now let's say the government goes to you and is like, congratulations. Uh, I know that you're out of work, but luckily we've passed this forward thinking policy for people who've lost jobs due to automation. And under that, you and your wife will each get $10,000. And instead of making 70 grand, you'll make 20 grand. Isn't that good? And you'll be like, no, that's not good. <laughs> right. Um, right. So you're going, you're going from a guy who has a full-time job and the identity that comes with that and that it takes up a bunch of your time, but in exchange for your time, you have a middle-class living standard. And in the basic income scenario, you you like you lose the identity, sense of purpose. You're living just above the poverty line right. rather than in the middle class, and you have a lot of free time. <laughs> right, and I guess the way the sympathetic way of reading that is, you can then take a lower earning job that you're also qualified for. That you might not have the skills to get something at your old earning potential as a trucker, but maybe you get a job at a CVS or um, uh, or in some service industry, and you're making like thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. And then getting the basic income helps get you closer to what you used to have, but. It's a really inefficient way of doing that. Like the the Obama administration in its last couple of years had a plan for wage insurance where the idea was that the government, you would pay some premiums to the government through unemployment insurance, and then they would replace your wages if you were sort of forced into a lower earning job to sort of cushion that blow. And, and that makes a lot of sense that you're trying to insure against this specific eventuality that some subset of workers will have. And that that's a more targeted approach than just giving literally everyone this one benefit, um, whether or not there's someone in this specific situation that you're trying to address. Right. I mean, I would also say, like, this is part of the reason for the, like, the traditional, like, welfare state 1.0. Right. Which we only sort of have in the United States, right? But, like, part of the idea of, like, healthcare being heavily subsidized education being heavily subsidized of like having a functional public transit system things like that is supposed to make it so that like income shocks have real but limited relevance right. to like what happens in your life right that like we have certain things of particular concern that like you ought to be able to go to the doctor and get around town and send your kid to college like regardless of what specifically like happens to you in 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 your career trajectory because we are in part at least because we are aware that through poor timing like you can have something go really wrong like in your mid 40s and there's like not there's just like inherently not amazing solutions to that kind of thing right like right. you would have to you have you would have to go do something different, and most people don't want to go start something new at that particular time in their life. Um, but so it's like one thing that we can do is at least create some just like general security for everybody right. about like how it's going to be for for citizens. But yeah, like a special generous relative to two dollar a day poverty but stingy relative to middle class respectability check doesn't it doesn't address 
like the issue. Right. Well, and and I think a lot of European countries sort of address this in a, a kind of blunt way with early retirement, that there are a lot of countries where you can retire at, at 60, 58, sort of lower than even the, the right. minimum retirement age for Social Security. And that gives you an outlet if you feel like you're too old to retrain and, and you you just want to exit the labor force. Like, that's an avenue. Um, uh, there's a good German study about how when people age out of unemployment and into retirement, they, like, feel much happier. Right. Because there's, like, a different social meaning. Right. Being retired is a totally respectable thing to be. Being unemployed is not. And and there's the difference between the two is blurrier than you might think. Right. Um, but, yeah, so I, I think where I, I left it was we have very little reason to believe that that we're going to have sort of the mass technology-driven unemployment that's motivating a lot of these discussions. And the smaller scale, but still very real disruption that we're happening, UBI is not probably the, the most natural solution for that. That it's a, it's a real problem, and UBI might be good for other things, but I don't think you can justify it solely by reference to sort of truck drivers losing jobs due to self-driving trucks and the like. You know, it's, it's really nice. It's really fun at the end of the day to relax with a nice glass of wine, uh, particularly, you know, here in the summer. It can really sort of enhance the moment and a great way to make a steady supply of like really good, enjoyable wine that's convenient and affordable is with Wink. You just go to trywink.com, T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com. They have a little, uh, they call it a palate profile quiz. They like ask you, you know, how do you take your coffee? So some questions about your taste. And, and so then based on that quiz, they recommend distinct interesting wines, customized to your palate. They ship them to your door every month. It's really nice and easy. It's really convenient. And then when you drink them, you rate what you liked, what you didn't like, and they get better and better recommendations each month. They work directly with winemakers to cut out the middleman, so they're able to give you a good price, and they're able to give you wines that that are, you know, exactly custom to you. Uh, you can skip any month. You can cancel any time. They have a 100% satisfaction guarantee. And best of all, right now, they're offering $20 off your first order when you go to try trywink.com slash weeds. They'll even cover the cost of shipping. Trywink.com slash weeds. So last, the righteous and good universal basic income (laughs) is that here in America, where robots have not yet taken all the jobs, where most people are, I don't know, you know, they, they get by. Some people are doing really, really poorly, nonetheless. Yes. So we have one of the highest rates of relative poverty in uh, among developed nations. Uh, we also have one of the highest absolute poverty rates. If you just use the U.S. poverty line across OECD countries, we, we do very, very poorly. And if you dig into the internals of that, it's not that there's something wrong with our labor market or that there's something wrong um, with with uh, wages, like certainly wages should be higher, people should have jobs, et cetera. I don't mean to diminish that. But what explains the variance is tax and transfer schemes, that that the U.S. has lower poverty than a lot of European countries before you take government spending and taxes into account. And, And so I think the question you have to ask yourself is, if we need to plug that gap, if the U.S. needs to get to sort of European levels of poverty reduction, what's the best way to do that? And I think there's a real case that basic income or basic income-like ideas are a good way to get there. 
So one idea is, is a negative income tax, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, there was a really good study that I mentioned in the piece um, by some researchers at the University of Michigan, one of whom is now running Y Combinator's basic income study. Uh, but they were estimating what a negative income tax set at the poverty line with a 50% phase-out rate would be. So you're a family of four, you get, say, sort of eighteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a year, and then it phases out. You lose $0.50 cents for every dollar you earn from something else. So you still have an incentive to earn money, but um, uh, but it, it, it goes away, and so it's a little cheaper. And they found that that costs about the same amount as if you added up all of America's like pure anti-poverty programs. So not mm-hmm. stuff like like uh, Medicaid or Medicare or, or Social Security, but earned income tax credit, uh, food stamps, supplemental security income, which is actually a negative income tax that is only for disabled right. and elderly people, but it works exactly the same. And there are some design things there. Like it's, it's doing it based on households, which can create some weird incentives to create new households to get more money right. and whatever. And so you'd, you'd want to design it a little differently. But I think it's important in illustrating that the U.S. could probably afford a, a negative income tax that wipes out poverty. Now, I think it's important to, to specify that the wiping out poverty like is good, but is also not an end in itself, that the poverty line is always somewhat arbitrary. Right. And if your focus is just like getting rid of everyone below that line, you should be focusing more on just like raising the incomes of, of people at the bottom. And so even if it doesn't wipe it out entirely, you can still make a lot of, of right. progress. That it's a very precisely targeted way to get money in the hands of the very poorest people in the United States. And so I think that's really promising. And I think the other even more promising avenue is uh, is a child allowance, which is something that most uh, European countries that Canada has. And that's where you just get money per kid every month or year. And, and people, it is everybody. Everybody, yeah. Um, some of them phase out at the very top. Sure. Uh, so, so Canada, if you're like making over $200,000 a year, you don't get it. France has a, has a funny policy where you have to have multiple kids to get it because they want to encourage more sure. childbirth. But but most places it's it's no matter what like uh, Germany has a program called Kindergeld um, that does this uh, and they're very effective at reducing poverty. Poverty in the United States and most countries is concentrated in families with children, and so targeting them through a, a, a big benefit for children is is a pretty effective mechanism, and it's very popular that that it, you can get buy in. Uh, there like is a very real sense of buy in from social conservatives who want to um, support stay at home parents and give them resources. And there's there's buy in on tax simplification grounds that we have all these benefits for parents with kids. We have the child independent tax credit and the child tax credit and the personal exemption and um, and just by merging a lot of them, you can get something like this. Um, Sam Hammond at the Niskanen Center has a plan for a $2,000 a year child allowance that's paid for just by consolidating existing benefits. And the, and the key thing here, I mean, because this is, I mean, why it's helpful to think of these as like different kinds of things, right? Like the critical sort of like work that, that a child allowance does is it reduces poverty a lot because families with one to zero earners and multiple children account for such a large share of the poor. But the idea of financial, extra financial support for families with kids makes some kind of logical sense all up and down the economic spectrum, right? right? So just like the basic idea that like a non-poor 
family earning $55,000 a year might need more money if that family has three children than if it's like one guy in his studio apartment makes perfect sense to people. So it's like you're creating a family support program that is universal, but that has a large, large impact on the poverty side, right? Whereas some of these other kinds of ideas, focusing on automation, you know, focusing on on other kinds of things, you could get them to have poverty reduction benefits, uh, but it's, it's much less clear, like, what the issue that's actually being solved is. Whereas here, like, the, the cheapest way to reduce poverty is to have incredibly strictly means-tested programs, but right. that creates a lot of, like, well, why is Joe getting this help, but I'm here busting my ass all day at work. Right. Right? Like, if the answer is, like, people are getting help because they're raising kids and that's expensive— and that's expensive and it's valuable to right. us that that the government needs payroll taxpayers in the future and and population decline creates all kinds of problems and and so you're you're paying parents for investing in people who will help the country as a whole um in the future which i think makes a lot of sense to people and i think it's also appealing in that it's neutral in types of families i think you, you get a lot of pushback from conservatives about sort of paid leave um, or, or less paid leave and more child care policies that sure. that you don't – a lot of stay-at-home parents are like, why are, are my tax dollars going to people only who make this different choice than I made? And if you – especially if you have a generous benefit, like I think uh, Canada, the, the top benefit for young kids is something like $5,500 a, a year. You can either use that to help pay for child care or you can use it – to sort of help you stay home if you want to do that, that it's, it's sort of neutral between those those decisions, which I think is is appealing politically and also sort of as a policy matter. And I think, you know, one difference that's, that's important here is that if your interest in creating a basic income program is to help families with children and particularly to reduce domestic poverty, then it's natural to look at other programs that also do that and care about them. We care about right. what Congress is doing with refundability of child tax credit, care about what Congress is doing with SNAP benefits. Something that I found very frustrating about Mark Zuckerberg's commencement speech is that th- there's a tendency when you're talking about like the automation UBI to like drift off in some universe where you have no idea what's happening in actual politics, because we have a lot of government programs, but none of them are like close cousins to the creation of a post-work utopia. So you can like watch Congress debating whether they should devastate the food stamp program and be like, well, when we have robots. (laughs) We'll get them all on board. Yeah. Yeah. It's frustrating. And in Zuckerberg's case, if I were the CEO of Facebook, I would be very worried about antitrust enforcement sure. <laughs> and would not want to annoy the Republican administration in charge by accusing them of like wanting to starve the poor. But it is frustrating, and it's frustrating that there's so much effort from Silicon Valley going into these sort of grandiose proposals when there are battles being fought on the ground that there's less interest in. There are fights in, in a lot of states to get state-level EITCs or to increase them, to, to increase the amount of, of money going to the working poor. You could imagine fights for, like, child allowances at the state level. And and then there's just plain defense that, that 
budget that Trump put out includes a lot of cuts to food stamps, includes even larger cuts to Medicaid. I think any, anyone who wants the kind of basic income that would be effective should be horrified by those things and, and fighting them aggressively. And especially when there's so many UBI fans who are billionaires. Sure. <laughs> right. Okay. That said, thank you, Dylan. If you're looking for other exciting things to do with your with your podcasting time, I, I am I am wearing my worldly t-shirt right now. That is an excellent podcast about uh, foreign affairs. Uh, we've got, as always, the Ezra Klein show, where uh, some guy I don't know uh, interviews people. Todd Vanderwerf's. Uh, I, I think you're interesting. Fascinating look at, at all the creators behind sort of the, the best pop culture coming out today. And of course, you know, check out the, the Weeds Facebook group. Uh, there's a lot of great discussions happening there. Um, it, it's a great place to go to, to sort of debate these issues further. Um, thanks to our producers, Peter Leonard and Jillian Weinberger. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next week.